Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 91. Today, we continue and finish up this mini-series with part two of Cyril Weck's Case for Conspiracy. It's an episode with riveting excerpts from his talk and interview that was conducted by Stephen Fagan at the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas sometime around 2013. Even into his 80s at the time of this interview, Dr. Weck has a presence in a room and you'll hear and feel it in this episode. This colorful, world-renowned pathologist makes his case for conspiracy. And he makes us laugh a bit along the way, too. And he reminds us all that common sense goes a long way and that we shouldn't check it at the door, so to speak, just because the government said something was so. His own common sense, no BS approach reinforces that we should just call it like it is sometimes. And he sure does. You'll hear that for yourselves. You will be nothing less than entertained as you listen to this, again, world-renowned pathologist. He'll entertain you and push you into thinking independently and combining it with your own common sense as a juror to come to a conclusion that is diametrically opposed to the conclusions of the Warren Commission. You'll hear commentary on many, many things in this episode. Was there a shot from the grassy knoll? You'll hear what Cyril thinks. Was Oswald the shooter? You'll hear what Cyril thinks. Dr. Weck has some pretty pointed comments on Alan Dulles, too. Maybe even explosive, I might say. One thing Dr. Weck is keen on, and I know from speaking to him personally that this is quite genuine, is that he believes each generation should be informed about the true facts of this political assassination. In a seriously humorous moment, he insists that public libraries should have a copy of the 26 volumes of the Warren Report on the shelf for just that reason, so that the people of the current generation can be informed about what exactly was said and what exactly the government wanted its people to believe in 1964. He also has a suggestion on what shelf the Warren Commission report should be filed on in the library. You'll find that answer invigorating. Does Cyril think that the Russians or the Cubans or the Chinese or the mafia were involved? Well, you get his views on that too. Early on in the podcast, I think it was about 35 episodes in. I can't quite remember right now. Well, I got an email from an educator in Chicago, and he had decided that he was going to go on a cross-country trip to the West Coast. He was a high school teacher who taught, uh, as I recall, I think it was social studies or something similar, and each November he would ask his students to do a study module on the JFK assassination. When he found our podcast, it really got his attention, and he binged on the podcast along with one other news channel, CNN, I believe, and so we rode with him all the way to the West Coast and back. I am guessing, as my memory of it is not that good now, but I think his round trip was more than 40 hours. He said he was going to have his students use the podcast to help gain a better understanding of the assassination and what it meant, and to learn more about what actually happened. 
I shared that little tidbit with Dr. Wack last year, not long after it took place. I think he liked it. He chuckled when I told him it was a podcast. Certainly not like a volume of the Warren Commission report that most certainly is covered in a layer of dust. But unlike the podcast, you can still find it in a library. Dr. Weck found it originally in the great Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh. I am proud to be helping pass this story along to the next generation using current generation technology and to keep alive the idea that someday we might recover the remaining portion of the whole truth, a whole truth that even today remains an enduring secret. As far as binging on the episodes go, I have another success story, and it comes this week from a friend and a colleague, one recently attained as part of my current work assignment in West Virginia. Mark Gilliam is a real gentleman, and he is from Kentucky. And when his Wildcats were recently upset by St. Peter's in the NCAA March Madness Tournament, well, Mark needed to do something to take his mind off the upset, and my podcast was the recipient. He binged on almost 80 episodes, I think. Wow, new record. Thanks, Mark. You inspire me to do more, and I am sorry about the Wildcats, but I'll take the downloads any way I can get them. Mark, you and others will have to listen in on this episode to hear Dr. Wecht and his answers to those most important questions, and even more as he challenges anyone to believe that the narrative of the Warren Commission was the whole truth, or even the truth for that matter. As Dr. Weck so eloquently points us to, pointing to the words of a prominent government official, the Warren Commission was simply a convenient political truth. You know, I think Dr. Weck likes colloquialisms as much as I do. I guess it's a rather generational thing. And it's funny to hear him make a reference to the good old boys in the South, referring to Warren Commission members, including Congressman Wade Boggs of Louisiana and also Georgia Senator Russell Long. And to make it clear that they weren't fooled by the manufactured narrative of a lone gunman. I guess it's his version of that dog don't hunt. Anyway, it's fun to listen to. In the end, Dr. Weck might be talking about the autopsy, but it's really a talk that is chock full of common sense, sage advice about human beings and their human tendencies. But even he believes that you can't write this stuff and find it in a novel. Dr. Weck is probably one of the last Titans left that has been right there in the arena on this matter since the beginning and searching for the truth related to the Kennedy assassination. So that means that he's been doing it for the last 60 years. Maybe Dr. Weck would say that it's been more like wandering in the desert. He's now been an inspiration to many, and he's into his 90s now himself, but he's still going strong. I hope Dr. Weck is here when the enduring secret is finally revealed. In that moment, I have no doubt that he will be up on the dais to receive the golden key. To that end, this episode is dedicated to Dr. Wecht. So now, without further ado, let's listen to episode 91 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 
This was not Jonathan A. Ramsey, where the passage of those hours in those two cases make, make it very difficult to know exactly what happened because of the procrastination, the delay, the negligence of the people involved in those cases. In this case, we don't have a problem. We know when he was shot, where he was shot, and that he died from being shot. So you had all the time in the world to get together the top forensic pathologists in the country. Milton Halpern, then chief medical examiner in New York City. Uh, he was a wonderful man. Everybody considered him the number one guy. Milton Halpern, he already had his bag packed. This is, I know this from Milton. This is, this is true. He had his bag packed. He had already made calls to a couple of other of the top forensic pathologists, one of whom I think was the chief where I trained, Russell Fisher in Baltimore, Joe Spellman in Philadelphia, Alan Morris in, in Boston, formerly of Cleveland, to go there with him. Not that he was cocky and arrogant, but, you know, this is what you're going to do. Well, no. Not one of them was called. Think about this from the very beginning. This was a military-controlled operation. Humes and Boswell at Bethesda Naval Hospital, where it was decided that the autopsy would be done because of Kennedy's naval history, were called in to do the autopsy. And this, I love to say this, and I must admit I get devilish delight in doing this because amongst you, I don't know what the percentage is, whether you're a, a, a minuscule representation of the entire country and there are anywhere from 20 to 40% of you who believe the Warren Commission or whether it's more, I don't know, but there are certainly some people here, I'm sure, who believe it. And I want you to know this. I want you to know your evidentiary burden. You gotta live with this, baby, if you're going to court. Humes and Boswell, you got this case multiple gunshot wounds of the president, multiple gunshot wounds of Governor Connolly. You've got to determine angle, trajectory, sequence, correlation of Kennedy's wounds to Connolly's wounds. That is a frightening, frightening, it takes hours and hours. You can spend hours and hours and so on. Humes and Boswell, the two Bethesda Naval Hospital pathologists, had never done a single gunshot wound autopsy in their entire careers. Not a single gunshot wound autopsy in their entire careers. This is America. This is our country. I was recently interviewed by somebody in Sweden on the still unsolved death of their prime minister, Olaf Palm. And I, and I said, by the way, who did the autopsy? And the chief forensic pathologist, of course, at the Institute of Forensic Science. You go and you look at any one of the political assassinations in any country, including Africa, Asia, and Europe, and I'll bet you anything. You can consider this a bet to a fine meal somewhere. You will find, if you have a top official that had been assassinated in any one of those countries over the years, that the autopsy was done by the top people at the Institute of Forensic Science, whatever they call it, okay? So I want you to know that. All right, well, am I just excited and passionate, as Steve says? <laughs> because am I, am I, am I intellectually, am I intellectually affronted? Am I chauvinistically um, deplored as a forensic pathologist? Well, let's see. Now we get to the heart of the case from a medical standpoint. Let's go back to the 18 doctors right here in Dallas at Parkland Hospital. They don't know a thing about this assassination, right? I mean, they don't know. They know. They're, they're, they're doctors. They're doing their thing. Trauma surgeons, um, and they're called in. You've got a dozen. This is on record. This is on camera. One of them, Dr. McClellan, we had him in our 2013 conference live, this wonderful surgeon, now retired. Every one of them talked about 
the defect in the back of the skull. Ken Clark, the chief of neurosurgery, do you think he knows the difference between cerebellum and cerebral hemisphere? What do you think? Okay, he said he held the damn cerebellum in his hand. In his hand, that's back here. The base, posterior base of the brain, the cerebellum. That's what they saw. Who do you believe? Who do you believe? These guys or the people there at Bethesda who have never done a gunshot wound autopsy in their entire careers. And by the way, talking about passion and being upset, how would you feel? I love to come up with this uh, um, retrospective metaphorical presentation. What if the president wasn't shot that day? He slipped in the bathtub, taking a shower, struck his head, and became groggy. Maybe he was unconscious for a short while. So I'd ask you, non-medical people, whom would you call? So you say, well, I want a neurologist. You say a neurosurgeon. You say an internist to check his heart and lung status. And you know a little about medicine. You say an ophthalmologist, look at the eye grounds, because sometimes an intracranial hemorrhage can be manifested uh, on ophthalmological examination, okay? What if, under my metaphorical presentation, they had called in to evaluate Kennedy and his concussion, they had called in a dermatologist, a plastic surgeon, and an obstetrician? How would you feel about that, okay? Okay. Does it take much to make somebody passionate, to make somebody pissed off? I mean, to, you got to accept that kind of total bull****. I mean, this is, this is what you're dealing with. And I, I'm hammering that. I know I'm hammering it because I want people who believe in the Warren Commission to understand what you are dealing with. All right, now let's go on and see. Oh, no, hold on. Let me go back. This is the sketch. This is the sketch that they made that night. And they show, <clears throat> you see, in the back, uh, the, the wound up there, uh, the figure on the right-hand side. And, of course, of course, the figure on the left, the curvature, curvy, linear in the neck. On the night of the autopsy, these two totally incompetent, completely inexperienced guys missed a bullet hole in the president's neck. I want you to take a look at the person sitting next to you. You think you need four years of college, pre-med, four years of medical school, and five years of pathology to see that the person next to you has a bullet hole with blood coming out in the neck. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think, huh? So how the hell did they miss it? Because the doctors here at Parkland had immediately recognized that the bullet had fortuitously ripped through the trachea. When you have somebody with a head injury or a stroke, you gotta take over for the brain. The brain is the boss. The brain controls everything. So you gotta do what the brain does. And you gotta get out carbon dioxide, put in oxygen, and suction out blood and mucus, and you do a tracheostomy. Well, the bullet had made the tracheostomy for them, but they had to expand the hole somewhat, <clears throat> described as a seven by four millimeter hole. They had to expand it in order to attach the tubing from the oxygen machine. And so these guys who did the autopsy that night, including Fink, who came over. I was a third pathologist. He had some experience in forensic pathology, essentially dealing with military weaponry. I, Pierre Fink, I knew personally uh, from my visits to the AFIP, um, missed the bullet hole. It wasn't until the next morning, I told you before about the passage of time, they had an opportunity to talk with the surgeons here in Dallas and learn. You always do that if you have somebody that's been operated upon and so on. They never did that. And now on 
Saturday morning, November 23rd, they learned for the first time that they had missed a bullet hole on the President of the United States. How do you handle that? How do you handle that? I'll tell you how you handle it. If you're Asian, you commit suicide. <laughs> if you're European, you resign. If you're an American, you just bull your way out of it. That's the way you handle it, okay? That's it. So now, how did they deal with the bullet holes on Friday night, November 22nd? Oh, this is lovely, too. They're probing the back wound, finger, instrument, feel nothing. <clears throat> Do x-rays, see nothing. Open up the chest, take out the lungs, find nothing. Can you just imagine if you were there? Just then, like a, one of those horrible movies, the terrible movies, uh, they come on late at night and it's 1.30 and the, the station's going off the air at two o'clock, you, you can predict what's gonna happen. It has to happen because there's only a half hour left with commercials. Something had to happen. Well, sure enough, the FBI called in to the FBI um, from Dallas to DC and they had found a bullet on, beneath, to this day, I don't believe that it's something say on the stretcher, beneath the stretcher, whose stretcher, it's a Jackie Mason routine, his stretcher, her stretcher, you know, if you ever, I mean, I, I could just see Jackie Mason doing this, my God, okay, and uh, ah, said the pathologist at Bethesda, when the president lay on his back, supine, and the doctors applied pressure to the front of his chest, that pressure applied to the front of his chest forced a bullet that they knew had gone deeply into the tissues back out through the same channel and through the same hole. Yeah? Well, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's not like putting your car in reverse. In Pittsburgh, we've got these big tunnels, and I talk about Fort Pitt and Liberty Tunnels. You go into the tunnel and you decide you're going in the wrong direction, and you just back up and go back out. It doesn't work that way. When a bullet strikes, the tissues become hemorrhagic. They become edematous. They encase the bullet. Bullets don't flop around, unless you're talking about lying free in the abdominal cavity or the chest cavity. But if they are in tissues, muscular, fascia, um, tendons, ligaments, whatever, they become in, in, encased. And you've got to dig for them and spend sometimes a lot of time, even with x-rays, looking for the damn bullet. But that's what they concluded that night. So that's where the stretcher bullet, Commission Exhibit 399, the hero of the single bullet theory, came from on Friday night. The next morning, when they learned about the bullet hole in the front of Kennedy's neck, now the bullet had gone through from the back out of his neck and saw this starch white collar, got frightened to death, fell in the front of his clothing, and now the bullet is from the front of Kennedy's clothing, okay? And now they're in good shape. Everything's fine. Everything's taken care of, right? They submit their report, and that's it. Well, along comes a guy named Abraham Zapruder, uh, who took the pictures here, and you all know about that, of course. And the film, which I had the opportunity to study with Tink Thompson, determined that 18.3 frames move through the film per, <clears throat> per second. 18.3 frames. And, you know, as the old people, somewhat older, uh, remember putting on the spool of film inside the camera, and then you, each one of those little things is a frame, and study that at Life magazine blow-ups, I think they were 11 by 15 or 8 by 11 or something like that, and just going from frame to frame, and you're moving 1 18th of a second from picture to picture. There's not a word you can utter. There's not a thought you can entertain. There's not a movement you can make 18 times in one second. 
We study this murder at 1 18th second intervals. And they did that. And they saw that John Connolly was struck about one and a half seconds after Kennedy was hit the first time. Okay. Then they come up with the alleged murder weapon, Manica Carcano, described by every long gun expert I've ever spoken to as the most inferior weapon of his genre developed anywhere in the world. I'll never forget, um, I had done a medical legal program in Italy in 1965. Uh, it was my first international program, and I put together another one in 1972, I think it was, and they asked me to speak about the Kennedy assassination, and I said, sure. And I was talking, and I saw some of the distinguished professors I had met my previous visit, uh, older than I at that time, and they were kind of smiling and giggling and a little bit, and I just felt so bad I did that I, so afterwards I went to Silvio Marley, who had become the director and who spoke good English, and I said, Silvio, I, I, I feel terrible. I want to apologize if I said anything that was um, silly. Uh, he said, no, no, you don't understand. He says, when you were talking about the Manica Carcano, he says, in Italy, the Manica Carcano is considered to be an instrument of love, not a weapon of war. Um, <laughs> that is the Manager Carcano. That's your weapon. And at that time, it took 2.3 seconds from shot to shot in the hands of the most skilled marksmen, uh, whoever they were. They got them lined up. I might have been Clint Eastwood or John Wayne, but you know, I mean, who's fast on the draw? And in that not allowing time, remember, it's a moving target and sporadically blocked by some tree branches, too. Looking out that window down there below us, one floor. Um, 2.3 seconds. I know since then, they talked about, well, somebody did it faster or that. In the meantime, before and they, they came to realize the full impact of that, that was it in the hands of the most skilled marksman shooting, as I recall, on a platform in an open field. 2.3 seconds. Well, how can that be? It can't be. How do you handle that seemingly impossible physical incongruity between the timing of the, of the, of the Zapruder film and the timing of the shooting of the, Z, of the Manica Carcano? And that is when junior legal counsel for the Warren Commission, later to become senior senator from Pennsylvania, Arlen Specter, came up with the single bullet theory. Specter, very bright guy. And I'm not dumping on Specter in some kind of a not hominid fashion. As a matter of fact, we became quite good friends. And in 2004, when he was running for re-election, he asked me if I would <coughs> come out for him. And I was very active in democratic politics. He was running for re-election as a Republican, and I did. And I, and I came out for him, and I came out for him again in 2010. I just mentioned that uh, th so you'll know that, you know, it's not my intention here to, to dump an art inspector. In fact, I think he was, he was brilliant to come up with how else were they going to handle this? How else were they going to handle it? It was Spectre's idea. And that's the, what they ran with. And that's what they must live with to this day. The single bullet theory. Here it is. Here it is. The bullet hits Kennedy here about six and a half, six inches below. Okay? Now to begin with, and this is a matter of record. I'll tell you if I'm conjecturing or speculating or giving you a subjective interpretation. This is a matter of record. The bullet exits here. It's 11 and a half degrees upward. How did my esteemed colleagues on the forensic pathology panel handle that? Well, they said, if the president was bent over, see? But Mr. President, don't tie your shoelace or scratch your groin. You're here to look at the crowd, Mr. President, okay? Please. 
The president was not bent over. Look at the Zapruder film. Forget Weck. Look at the Zapruder film. So the bullet fired from up there, coming down, right to left, back to front, up downward, goes upward 11 and a half degrees, comes out, and you take the line, okay? 30 inches separate the president's chest from the governor's back. 30 inches, okay? The bullet come out. Now maybe, well, maybe caught him over here on the left side, grazed him, and maybe I wouldn't even be here speaking. The bullet hits him over here behind the right armpit. Behind the right armpit. X's from below the nipple. Now you know why I always says I told you, we always can't never have a woman as the governor. <laughs> Except until I hear from Sophia Loren, then we're gonna change that. <laughs> Now, where, where was Connolly's hat? Where was that? Where was that? Was it here? Look, Governor, go look at the crowd. They love you. Governor, show them that big white Stetson hat, okay? Nipple here? Below the nipple. You tell me how that bullet coming down comes up and around, slams into the back of the wrist. Inside the chest, it's destroyed four inches of the right fifth rib. Destroyed it. Perforated the lung, destroyed four inches of the right fifth rib anteriorly, exits from beneath the nipple, hooks up and around, goes into the back of the governor's wrist, shatters the distal end of the radius. And, and no background, there are two, two bones, elbow to wrist, radius and, 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 and uh, ulna. And the radius uh, broadens. You have eight little wrist bones here. The, the radius broadens. Conley was six foot four, big bone Texan. Big bone Texan. You know, you're talking about a, you're talking about a big bone. Exits, producing a, a comminuted fracture, exits from the front of the wrist and goes into the left thigh. And then under the single bullet of theory, that's where it came from. It worked its way out of the governor's left thigh. That is the single bullet theory. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, Madam President. Let's talk about the head wound for a moment. I've already told you about what the doctors here at Parkland, having no script to read from, no scenario to sell, just what, what, what do you see? What do you see? Top experienced trauma surgeons, including neurosurgeon and his number one assistant, Robert Grossman, uh, whom I came to know personally. Uh, my, my second son uh, did six years of neurosurgical uh, residency under Grossman uh, at, uh, <clears throat> uh, in, in, in Houston. Um, so two neurosurgeons talking about cerebellum. You see the way in which the president's body lurches. A motorcycle policeman riding just behind the left rear wheel of the president's car was spattered with blood some tissue, and was certain for several seconds that he had been shot. How did the government deal with that? Luis Alvarez, a major scientist in California, put some melons on a stand, on a fence, shot the melons. Some of the melons uh, did come backward instead of going forward. Uh, anything that was needed they can come up with an answer. I want you to think of a bullet weighing 161 grains, an inch and a quarter in length, a quarter of an inch in diameter, copper jacketed, lead core, military ammunition, 
moving 2,000 feet per second, slamming into the back of your head. Okay? How do you think you're going to move? How about right now as you sit here, the person sitting behind you says, uh, you damn conspiratorialist, I'll show you, and whacks you in the back of your head. Are you going to move? Are you going to move backward? Or are you going to move forward when he whacks you in the front of your head? What do you think? In the back of your head. What do you think? Okay. This is, this is, you see, the present, the, 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 the burst. But anyway, but I, I ask this, really, that I ask this favor of you in all seriousness. If your school where your children, your grandchildren go, that school, that particularly uh, high school, certainly, college, university, does not have the 26 volumes, make sure that they get it. Because this is part of history of this country, indeed of the world. But then there is a corollary to my request, and that is that in addition to purchasing, you request that they put those volumes in the proper place in the library where they belong. Next to Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, that's where they belong, okay? It isn't difficult to become passionate about this, to think about what is involved here. What, what was the situation then? How long did it take for the government, our government, to determine that it wasn't the Russians, and it wasn't the Chinese, and it wasn't the Cubans, okay? They quickly determined, I love this from Pogo, we have met the enemy, and he is us. That's what this case is all about. Recently, one of the members of the Warren Commission legal staff whom one of our CAPA board of directors uh, knows, saw him and they were talking and then saw him again. And, I, and, I, and he asked, and he, he shared this with us. He asked this member, I won't give his name. Um, he asked him, did he really think that the Warren Commission was correct? Did he think that the truth was told? And the answer I thought was beautiful. The answer that this man gave, the distinguished man, I wish I could tell you his name and his relationship to somebody now currently involved in national government. He said it was the political truth. That's what this was all about. The Kennedy assassination was when it happens in other countries of a prime minister, of a king, of a dictator, it's called what it is. It is the assassination, the murder of the leader. It is the overthrow of the government. And that's what occurred in America on November 22, 1963. This was coup d'etat in America. That's what happened. And that's why everybody should be damn passionate about the JFK assassination and make damn sure that the 1992 Records Release Act calling for the release of all the withheld documents in 25 years, which is in October of this year, that all those records are released. And that's what we're pushing for and fighting for. And make sure you keep that in mind with your congressman. Okay? Uh, well, um, I, I, I thank you. And um, I believe that we have time um, for uh, questions and answers. And I'm sure there are people who um, express any 
disagreement, uh, fine. Stephen, you'll come back up here and... Uh, Do you believe there was a connection between the murders of JFK and RFK? In a political, philosophical way, yes. Not, not do I believe or could I ever prove the same people, but the same kinds of people. Because to look for eight years of Bobby Kennedy, uh, they would be faced with the same kind. And Bobby Kennedy, and I think as a matter of record now, did express and to, to somebody that he was going to re, re look reopen look, look I should say reopen he's going to look into the I think his son has said this um, uh, that his father uh, Senator Robert Kennedy said um, and and by the way and I I don't want to digress you'll invite me back another time for this but I love to do this and I'm not going to miss the opportunity so and if somebody really knows this keep your mouth shut if you really know it for sure but, but I want to ask you, talking about Senator Robert Kennedy, so you don't think I'm some kind of a conspiratorial nut, but show you how these things can happen in, in our great country. Sirhan Sirhan, remember Bobby Kennedy has just won the California primary. He's going to get the Democratic nomination. That's it. Walking out through the kitchen, they've got to avoid the crowd. They'll tear him to shreds with his clothing. They, 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 they can't waste. So they come on, we'll go out through the, through the kitchen. And there's Sirhan Sirhan, Palestinian immigrant. And there's <clears throat> the senator walking toward him, and Sirhan shoots. Okay? That's it. You all remember that. Older folks and younger, okay? All right. What was the distance between Sirhan's gun and Robert Kennedy's body when he shot? Two feet. Two feet. Six feet, three feet. You're, you're right on. You're right on target. This is this is it. This is this is what everybody says. And I probably now I don't know collectively I don't know it could be certainly fifty to hundred thousand people have been doing this for all these years. What if I tell you? It's a matter of record. It's there. Go and look up the autopsy report. Dr. Tom Noguchi. Um, an excellent forensic pathologist, close friend and colleague who did the autopsy. I remember Tom calling me in the middle of the night not to talk about how to do an autopsy, but how to keep them from spiriting the senator's body away as they had done with John Kennedy here in Dallas. And I remember it was at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. My wife was in a hospital having given birth to our, uh, our daughter. And um, I said, Tom again has forgotten the three-hour time difference and he calling to tell me that Kennedy Senator has been shot. Okay. Now there is the official autopsy report signed by Dr. Noguchi. The evidence looked at by five or six board-certified forensic pathologists on his staff. Three military forensic pathologists. That was my big suggestion to Tom. Two suggestions. I said, Tom, got to preempt the government, you invite, and we knew these guys, they were our colleagues, they were our contemporaries, mm. invite them to send forensic pathologists to be there with you when you do the autopsy. And the second thing I recommended was, you got to reach out to somebody that's close to the Kennedy family and in government, and I immediately thought of Pierre Salinger, who was a native Californian, and Tom did both of those things, and, and, and so on. So, all right, so the three military forensic pathologists and then two civilian forensic pathologists who were official consultants, 
William Eckert, now deceased, and me. All of us. Plus some top-level academic pathologist at UCLA. The shot that killed Robert Kennedy. Ready for this? Number one, entered behind his right ear with a forward trajectory. Sirhan shooting in front. And the distance of the shot was one to one and a half inches. I'll repeat that. One to one and a half inches. That is a matter of scientific record corroborated by ballistic studies. So you've got to be asking yourself, what the hell is Weck telling us? How can it be? I'll tell you. How can it be? In the trial, defense attorney, and he was not somebody appointed from the public defender's office, Grant Cooper was his name, an experienced criminal defense attorney, never, never asked Dr. Noguchi on cross-examination, and obviously on direct prosecution, never got into it. And uh, the defense attorney never consulted a forensic pathologist or a criminalist ballistics expert. The only forensic scientist he used was a psychiatrist to talk about <coughs> um, uh, the psychiatric state of Sirhan Sirhan. Okay? Um, there. So I, I, I just mention this to you, not to get into a whole other ball game. But when people say, but geez, that, that's it. Go and check it out and see. So anybody who says, uh, I, 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 the government told me, the government told me, yeah, the government, government, we're still learning things, aren't we, about World War II, Korean War and Vietnam War, the way the government told you. And this isn't a Democratic or Republican, liberal, conservative thing, this is the government. This is, but the, this, this Pollyannish, this, this incredibly naive belief that our, our government is great democracy, sure, I don't want to live anywhere else, I want to live in America, it is a great country. But I mean, to believe that, that you know, we, we are just, we would never do anything like that. Wake up. It's just not true. It's just not true. There are the facts. I can take other cases, too. Elvis Presley, medical examiner announcing that he died of heart disease. He didn't have heart disease. He had 12 central nervous system depressant drugs. It's a matter of record. Check it out. I just throw these in. A little uh, parenthetical comment here, Stephen. So people, you know, maybe wake people up a little bit who still believe simply because it came from the government. And the government never lies to us. Let me ask another question here. You were friends with Arlen Specter, the architect of the magic bullet theory. Did the two of you ever discuss it? No. Um, even though he spoke at our 2003 uh, conference, which is still referred to as the Pittsburgh Conference, um, and, and, and we invited him, and like my colleague, Dr. Michael Bodden, my good friend and colleague who chaired the Forensic Pathology panel, you know, we wanted to reach out to both sides. They had Dr. Grossman come up and, and so on. Um, we, 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 we never really got into the discussion. I, I was tempted, but I think each of us just felt that. In, um, I know from one of our fellow critics in Philadelphia, supposedly, who had lunch with Spectre not long before, he passed away uh, that he expressed some some thoughts uh, but I wasn't there so I can't really say for sure but no I, I did never did not talk with it um, talk about it with the inspector okay <clears throat>
of bullet wounds as they exist, blood and gore and tissue, and then, um, then you um, shave the area. In fact, you collect hair, too, to look for carbonaceous material is going to help you determine distance. You know, in, mm -hmm. in a case like this, that was not a, a, a question, no matter what anybody believes. We know that it was fired from a distance beyond a couple of feet, which is then where we go beyond a couple of feet, you don't find stippling or deposition of soot and, and gunpowder residue. Um, but yes, you take those pictures, absolutely. And you've seen pictures uh, that I showed, I forget in my collection here tonight, the, they show the president's scalp in the rear completely intact. There's just no way. There's just no way. And, and, and again, you know, just go back and um, this, is, this is on paper and this is videoed, these doctors being queried and, and so on, on, on what they saw and, and where the, the damage was. And they talk about um, the posterior cranial fossa region and cerebellum. And yet we have Humes and Boswell and Fink, everything's intact. And by the way, interestingly, uh, Fink, shortly after that, left America and he is, you, nobody can contact him. I've tried, he even was a member of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences for, for years with no address. And I tried very hard, I'm a former president of the Academy and so on. Uh, Pierre Fink, uh, and he came back, I think, once uh, uh, to testify back in the uh, late 60s, and, and that's it. I saw Pierre Fink in 65 when I gave my paper in Chicago at the Drake Hotel. And I remember I, I mentioned that I, I had known him. I had met him. And, and I, I said, Pierre, uh, I'd like to you know, talk with you a little bit and just you know, ask you some, and he, he, not, he wasn't uh, angry at all. He was just so, so down. He just shook his head. You could see, you know, I mean, close to, to, to tears. He said, I, I, I wish I could talk about this. Um, because he knew a little bit about forensic pathology. So, one of the autopsy doctors was there when you gave your first oh, yeah, paper on the assassination. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, now you were talking a little quietly. What was his reaction to your paper? He was, well, not by my paper, no. He was sickened by, by the, he, he couldn't talk about the subject. Okay, you, you were asking him yeah, about yeah, the autopsy. Yeah, we sat down at lunch. Okay. And, he, and uh, no, he, he, he couldn't talk. He, 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 it was just, I can imagine. He was, a, he was from Switzerland, you know, very straight, you know, <laughs> kind of a, you know, intellectual, rigid, and he just, I can, you know, and I am, now I'm just conjecturing, I want to say this, but I can see, you know, that it, it was boiling up, burning up, burning up inside of him. Mm. There are a number of questions in this stack that ask the exact same thing. Basically, what do you think happened? You, you, you laid out, as you say, the case for conspiracy, but who was responsible? Who specifically do you Well, do you first of all, people? let's talk about this from a forensic pathological, forensic scientific investigative standpoint. What do I think happened? I do believe there were shots fired from the, the rear, 
And uh, by the way, I want to say this too. I'm not at all concerned in any kind of a personal way um, about Lee Harvey Oswald. My uh, input, and I don't speak for any of my colleagues, they can speak for themselves, has nothing to do with a um, retroactive posthumous exculpation, exoneration of Lee Harvey Oswald. You know, I, that's, that's a whole other ballgame. I personally, personally, I don't believe Oswald was a shooter. We can talk about that too. There's a lot, a lot on that. Uh, I forgot to mention about Oswald, and, and maybe we'll come back to that in a moment. But let me, let me finish up with this. But there were shots fired from the rear. But there definitely was a shot fired from the right front side, and it had to be from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. And that's the shot that comes in, produces all this damage, causes blood and brain tissue to go backward toward, toward the left, and so on. And that was the, the fatal shot. That's what I believe. All right, now what do I believe? Who was behind it? How many shots total? I think there were four shots, possibly five, but I think there were definitely four shots. Okay. Who do I believe? I'll tell you what I believe. And this, of course, I can't prove. But you've got to think about it. Who? I've given you the background, politically, what was happening in this country, and indeed in the world, and where we stood. And John Kennedy, no question about his reelection. You remember what happened. Uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, uh, murdered uh, Barry Goldwater. What do you think would have happened with Kennedy? And Bobby Kennedy, I don't think there's any question, if you talk to a political expert, again, whether you're a Democrat, I'm not saying this as a Democrat or what I would have liked to have seen, any political analyst will tell you there's no question Bobby Kennedy would have won that election. Remember that Hubert Humphrey lost by a, a fraction of 1% because the liberals were unhappy that he, as vice president, had not come out and criticized the Vietnam War, so they abandoned him. Okay, so I want to show you that Bobby Kennedy was going to be... So who do I think? I think that these were some people who could not sit by. They saw America going to hell in a basket. They could not see America pursuing these policies and looking at 13 more years of the Kennedys, of what was going to happen, pulling out of Vietnam, making detente with Russia, forgetting about the Cuban situation or, or cooling it down uh, uh, and, and, and from the heated position that it was. So who does that leave you? You got to leave you people in a powerful position. And I believe it was one, I, I, I think, and I, I wish, and I don't know this, I would be willing to bet insofar as determining that the assassination will take place, I would be willing to bet there weren't more than four, five people who made that decision. Oh, sure, everybody, then, you know, you do this and you do this and, and so on. You may come to guess uh, why you're being assigned this duty, but who, that, and I believe some probably ex-CIA and military people. Who was the lead man on the Warren Commission who attended most of the meetings, probably exceeding maybe collectively the others combined the time that they spent? Isn't this, is this ironic? If you wrote this in a novel, somebody wouldn't believe it. They get Dulles, Alan Dulles, who had been removed by Kennedy as the head of the CIA. 
Enoch comes back, and he's the lead man on the Warren Commission. Warren's your chief justice. You've got a few things to deal with. Two U.S. senators, two congressmen. You've got some things to deal with in your life. Dulles is running the damn show. It's unbelievable. That's who I believe. Um, and I, I think very likely that Dulles definitely was one of the people involved. I absolutely believe. And not all by himself, but I do believe that Dulles. Beyond that, you know, you got people out there. You had your General Walker down here. There was that Admiral Cromlin. You know, they were all in favor of bombing Moscow after World War II. Remember that? Remember, you, people don't know that. When World War II ended, what these, these ultra-right-wingers wanted to do, they wanted to go in and, and nuclear and, and nuke Russia. Get those communists. People you know, don't know or forget this. That's what was going on in America, leading to McCarthyism and so on. That's what, that was the milieu. That was the socio-political milieu. How do you deal with this? How do you deal with this? You, you can't. Hoover tried to do the same thing with, with Martin Luther King, destroy him, he'll release information about King's uh, sexual dalliances and so on. And he, these people had a following. And again, I'm not promoting that political um, philosophy. S set that aside. I'm just talking reality. Reality. Whatever John Kennedy said, you know, 100 million Americans, they fell in line. Martin Luther King just fell in line. Slavishly, dedicatedly, whatever it was, they fell in line. How do you deal with that? There is no way to deal with it. People say, how come Clinton wasn't shot? How come Bush wasn't shot? How come somebody hasn't shot Trump? You know why? Because you can deal with them. And you deal. They, they win election, they lose election. Trump won the election, Trump will lose the election. You don't have to worry. You, you, you couldn't do that with the Kennedys. There's no way you're going to beat them. How long do you let that go by when you see your country going to hell? That's what was at stake for these people. They were super patriots. When they saw the flag flying and they heard the Star Spangled Banner being sung, they saw and heard something more than regular folks, regular U.S. citizens and patriots like us are incapable of envisioning. We just don't have that kind of deep-seated dedication. And I know people say, well, how, you know, don't, you cannot compare yourself. These people that become involved as, as spooks as the CIA, you, 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 you can't compare yourself. How, how can somebody, this is another question, how does somebody keep a secret like this and so on? People keep secrets. They, 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 they do it. Um, they're capable of doing it. I can't do it. You can't do it. Um, some people keep a secret better than, than others and so on. But I'm just saying, you've got to understand that the kinds of people you were dealing with. And then the years go by. Lyndon Johnson never bought the Warren Commission. Senator Richard Russell and Hale Boggs from Louisiana, good old Southern boys, they knew his bull****. They knew that. They just signed on. They just, you know, get, get the things done. Johnson got to win the election. Sign on, man. Get it rid of. Russell and Boggs never bought the Warren Commission, and Johnson did not either. Good old Southern boys, they knew what the hell was going on. All right. So to follow up with the, the who was Jack Ruby, so so what? Mafia, well, mafia. Okay, you... Oh, the mafia. Oh, oh you, some people will say the mafia took out Kennedy. Oh, the mafia definitely was in play here. Oh, they absolutely had some things, the things to be done 
tidy up, do this and do that. Absolutely. And that's where these people uh, got in touch with, with the mafia. Whether it was uh, uh, Sam Giancana and and Marcello, Carlos Marcello. I mean, you know, you're talking about, of course, of course, they, they, they were involved in taking care of some of these things. You remember what was going on with Carlos Marcello and Bobby Kennedy uh, and, and uh, um, that whole scene? Um, there's no question. And by the way, too, for those people who still uh, remember as a little kid, everybody talked about the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, this is the J. Edgar Hoover who, who insisted there was no such thing as the mafia. There was, no, there was no mafia. There was no mafia. This is the same J. Edgar Hoover that um, insisted that all his people be square and so on, okay? He could party in a dress with his Clyde Tolan, but, but his FBI agents had to be straight. I want to, you know, I just want to share all these thoughts. You know, just, just keep them in mind. Uh, are they related? Well, part of America. You know, again, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm repeating, but I, I just want to make this clear. Uh, there are amongst, amongst you here and people who believe in the work. I just want you to understand, you can't have any ands, ifs, maybes, buts, howlovers, moreovers. You can't have that. You're pregnant or you're not pregnant. There's no, there's no in between. If you believe the Warren Commission report, I just want you to know this. I want you to know this. What you are believing, what you are accepting is that nobody, nobody, from the beginning through the execution of the act to the end, nobody had any knowledge, any awareness, any complicity, any involvement. Zero, zero, zero. That's what you are buying with the Warren Commission. I want you to understand that. You're buying Humes and Boswell. You're buying the single bullet theory. You're buying the whole thing. You just, just look at the whole scenario. Just look at it, the whole thing. Who was Lee Harvey Oswald? And then he's, he's on there, one floor below us, and the cars are coming right at him on, 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 on Houston, right? Mm -hmm. And closer and closer. I've got my gun. There's, there's Groden. The Ken, there's Kennedy. Closer, closer, closer. Man, I got a hell of... I'm going to wait till you turn. You're going away from me downhill. There's some tree branches. That's when I'll shoot. That's when I'll shoot. And then what the hell? I gotta give the gotta give the 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 cops a break here too. I, here's the gun. I'll just throw it in here, okay, into the corner. And then he is down there drinking his coke on the second floor. He's gone from the southeast corner to the northwest corner. A cop ran in. What was that cop's name? Whatever the cop's name was. Marion Baker. Uh, Marion Baker, okay. And then he say, there's Oswald drinking a Coke, right? Boy, is that some cool, calm SOB, <laughs> man, huh? I mean, you just killed a <laughs> president. Not to mention, not to mention that you're this fanatic, killed the president, but you keep insisting that you don't know what the hell they're talking about. You didn't kill anybody. And where was this fanaticism from? Why, why was he... I have it from first-hand sources that he liked Kennedy very much. Where did this hatred come from? Where did this hatred come from? From what was his background politically? To kill, to kill Kennedy? Where, where did it come from? And where was he going then? To the movie theater? And tip it. It just, 
think about it. It's just it's the whole. St it's just it's, it's incredibly bizarre. But this is what you got to buy. You want to make sure that you know what you are buying. I'm not here to convert anybody, but is anybody that walks out of here still believing in the Warren Commission? Okay, then I got a structure in Brooklyn. And I'm available for. <laughs> Well, I think regardless of what anyone in this room believes, what the passion you have demonstrated tonight reminds all of us, and I hope I speak for everyone here, that this story matters. It really does matter. It really does matter. Thank you for listening to Episode 91 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.